Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Caswell Barry and I'm here with my co-host Stephen Fleming. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just to ask about science, we ask about how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. And today, it's a real pleasure to be joined by Tobias Hauser, him, who is a Principal Research Fellow at UCL, and he um, leads the Developmental Computational Psychiatry Group at the Max Planck Centre for Computational Psychiatry and Aging Research. So Tobias um, did his PhD in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Zurich, and then came to UCL, um, where he started off as a postdoc in Ray Dolan's group, and then he um, got his own uh, prestigious Welcome Henry Dale Fellowship to start up his own lab focused on um, looking at uh, how psychiatric um, disorders emerge in development in childhood and adolescence. And as we'll hear, Tobias is interested in understanding the computational processes underlying a range of disorders, particularly obsessive compulsive disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So welcome, Tobias. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. So what we'd like to do to kick off is um, really just get our audience oriented uh, to what you're currently working on. So if you could just give us a brief summary of what your research focuses on and what are the key questions you're working on at the moment. Yes, I mean, you, you already very nicely introduced um, the big strokes of, of what we're interested. We are really interested in understanding why so many mental illnesses emerge during childhood and adolescence. So what is it that makes, it, in particular adolescence, such a vulnerable period for mental health? And we'll, we try to understand that um, trying to study the brain and how the brain develops and how cognition develops. Um, using both neuroimaging methods as well as computation models. And the big questions that really arise from that is trying to understand what is happening in the brain during childhood and adolescence. So what, what changes until we become adults? What are the, the trajectories of, of brain growth, so to say, and how brain function changes and specializes and how does that maybe go awry and lead to mental illness such as OCD as you mentioned or ADHD so how the how are these two tied together and if we understand that can we use that to for example predict mental illness so can we find determinants that predict whether someone is going to develop, let's say, an OCD or not. Um, and if we do so, can we then also create interventions which might actually act um, before the um, illness actually arises? Can we, like, so preventative treatments? But that is kind of the long goal to hopefully detect it early and prevent um, these disorders from emerging. Mm -hmm. And And running through your research and the title of the field computational psychiatry is this word computation um which i think is an unusual and exciting approach compared to say um a lot of work that has been done in the past in psychiatry and i'm wondering whether you could just give us a brief definition 
and what you mean by computation there or computational model? Yeah, that's a very good question. Computation now puffs up almost everywhere. Um, and and the field of computational psychiatry is actually still relatively young. I think it started about 10 years ago. Um, and what it actually means is that we use mathematical models. So we describe the computations and these mathematical models try to imitate what the brain is doing. So we know that the brain is this extremely elaborate information processing machines and we understand some of the principles of these processes um, and we are describing them mathematically and by just having these mathematical models we can then um, match these models and see how do we have to um, tweak it how do we have to adapt it so that it matches what an adolescent is playing in a game and by doing that, we can actually understand the, the likely processes that are taking place in the brain. Uh, how I'm curious, how successful has this approach been? I mean, in my, I guess what I'm notionally doing is sort of comparing to my own field where models are very often sort of post hoc explanatory rather than having any direct predictive power. I know people would say differently, but that's the cynics view. Have these models been sort of successful in predicting new mechanisms of disease or predicting how a disease might appear or giving you new avenues into tackling them or predicting them earlier? Um, that is a very good question. Um, so obviously they, these models and, and probably the, the start of the field was rather serendipitous where um, people have had these recordings of dopamine neurons that looked funny um, and then some other people like Reed Montague and Peter Diane were working in artificial intelligence and had models uh, mainly to train artificial agents and then came across these um, kinds of data and realized, oh, that matches up pretty well. So that was a total serendipitous uh, discovery. And that has been extremely and, and this discovery um, has led to a huge bulk of, of work and um, lots of new insights. And I think uh, even though this was kind of post hoc in a way, um, I think it, it was so, like the literature that's built on that has shown how um, potent this idea was because we've now seen very similar signals like, all across the brain in different domains, uh, in different functions, which um, and, and it's like constantly evolving. We're refining these computational models and these understanding. Um, and I think that that really has shown that, yes, we can predict at least behavior and brain activation. And um, similarly, in, in some of the work that I have done, um, where we knew that these, these prediction errors or these uh, mathematical signals, which tell you how much my how much, how well I was predicting the future, essentially. Um, they were usually just set in the domain of reward. So if you get something nice, like a food pellet or some money, yeah, if you're a human. Uh, and then some of the work that we've been doing is that we looked at the same thing in the domain of effort. So how much work, how much effort do you have to put in? And we also hypothesized that it's following the similar principles. Um, and so we had this idea that it's processed in, in maybe similar but slightly distinct pathways and um, 
we then did an MRI study of a few years back, and indeed we saw that these prediction errors not only exist for rewards, but also for effort. So that humans adjust not only um, their expectations about how much money or points they get, um, but also they adjust how much effort they have to put in to, to receive these points. And we saw that these were processed in a separate pathway. So more um, in a mesocortical pathway, including the, the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, whereas these previously known reward signals were mainly processed in, in the ventral stratum. So there we had like very concrete hypotheses, which really turned out so that there was a huge predictive power. Now, how good are these models in predicting mental health is a completely different question. Um, and I think the, the answer to that we don't yet have. Um, I think that's that's where we are working at. So we know um, the state of the field is, usually, is is more or less that we know that there are links. So we know that certain populations that are suffering from depression or schizophrenia or OCD um, seem to have changes in these computational mechanisms. Um, but when we look at the predictive power, so can we predict um, whether someone is ill or not, just by using these methods, we are not yet that great. And there are many caveats why this is. And I think we are not asking the right questions. Um, and that's probably why we're not that successful yet. So it's in, it's interesting that you introduce your answer with the you know the classic example from reinforcement learning, which does seem to be just an amazing um, example of the tight linkage between algorithm drawn from work in learning theory and then how the brain works. But I'm just wondering whether, in your opinion, do you think RL reinforcement learning models have been a bit of a blessing and a curse for computational psychiatry because it's been so successful? So then there's a tendency to kind of think about reinforcement learning process and how they map onto mental health. And maybe there's other types of computation that we should also be thinking about. Um, yes, definitely. I mean, it has really over the last, I, I, I think when I started out, um, I, I did my, started my PhD and I, I thought it would be a cool idea to use these mathematical models um, in mental health. Um, before the word computational psychiatry was even a term. And obviously, in the last 10 years, it really has seen like uh, an explosion of, of people using it. And when I did my PC, it wasn't clear that RL is going to be the dominant one. There are lots of alternative good models, which are equally valid. And I think we are not actually very good at, at distinguishing them properly. Um, I think it's the there is a risk where you just follow the the herd and that your new hammer is RL and every illness is like is your nail and you can explain everything and that is often the case that's that's likewise the case with other um, computational approaches and i think that's more or less just a, a sign of of scientists believing that their hammer is is the ultimate hammer um, so if you speak to a, a visual scientist, maybe they think it's all in the visual cortex. Um, or if you speak to Caswell, it might be all place cells in, in the hippocampus. <laughs> yes, Surely not. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, you know, it's, it's a very good way of describing certain processes, um, but it also has its limitations and we can only get so far. But I think the field, as I see it, is 
flexible enough that um, that I feel like that they are um, able to. Yeah, it's it's not so dogmatic. So so the field is open to new suggestions and further developments and expanding it um, in past. You know, like beyond just behavior, also to self reports. And we've seen the last couple of years very good. Um, results coming out um, that that linked self-reports to like this more classic reinforcement learning. And um, I guess maybe moving towards some of your own research now, sort of, so how, how well does something like obsessive compulsive disorder fit into like this framework that's been established? Um, you know, like the, we've just talked about the sort of successes of RL and it's link, you know, and the biological implementation thereof. Is that is that a broad enough church that you can sort of that these other uh, diseases can sort of easily fit in there, or, or what is you know how I guess what I'm really asking you is how do you approach studying obsessive compulsive disorder? And maybe I should ask you to say what it is because I guess OCD is possibly one of the most misused terms uh, around. Yes, OCD really has um, a, a difficult standing. Um, because it is used very much in the common language, but it was mostly misused. Um, people often say, oh, I'm a bit OCD, when they're just referring to being slightly tidy, uh, which is, exact, is is not at all what OCD is. Um, OCD is short for obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and it is a very common and debilitating disorder, but it is completely neglected. Um, both clinically as well as scientifically. So the main symptoms are, as the name says, obsessions and compulsions. So obsessions are intrusive thoughts or images which cause a lot of distress. So that could be that you think, oh, did I accidentally put some bleach into the food that I prepared for my children and are my children going to die from it? Or it could be that if... Um, then if, if I don't do something, then there's some horrendous accident happening um, or that my house could burn down. So it's very varied, but these thoughts, they come into your mind and they stick there and they're really, really distressing. And so to get rid of this distress, many patients with OCD use compulsions, which are repetitive behaviors or mental acts. So that could be from what is usually known like the hand washing, um, but it's also often checking um, or mental rituals like counting to a certain number and so on. And they don't do, just do that once or twice. It's not like if you wash your hand thoroughly, that's not OCD. They do it for hours and hours and hours every day. And it's really, really impairing. So many patients that we're working with, um, they struggle to keep up their job because um, of their OCD, the OCD really takes a life of its own and, and takes over their life. And kind of many patients that we're working with um, uh, talk about like it's sitting on their shoulder and, and dominating what they're doing. So it's really impairing. And, and there's a lot of work that we have to do to destigmatize OCD and, and actually um, make it make the public more aware or more aware of what it is and and we're working we have a couple of public engagement uh, projects on that front um, now it's very common it affects three percent of the population about that's one in 33 people and it's very hidden because 
um, those affected by OCD, they are usually aware of it and they are aware that this is odd and that they can't quite rationally explain why it happens to them. So they often keep it on the lid. They don't really talk and share it with your with their friends and family. And so that's why we are not very aware of it. And I think there needs to be a, a change as well that, that we understand how common it is. Um, but even though it, it affects 3%, which is like much more common than let's say autism or schizophrenia, if you look at the research funding, it's it's a fraction of that. So you can compare how much money the, uh, we for probably spend, uh, for example, spend in, in the UK and, it's much, much less um, than for autism or schizophrenia. And that shows just that we, we are still very early days in OCD research. And that's how I come to your original question, which is how do you study OCD? And, and one of the challenges with OCD is really that we know, we still know fairly little. I think we've made a lot of progress in, in the, let's say, bigger or more researched um, uh, disorders like depression, anxiety, maybe even schizophrenia, whereas OCD is only very few people in the world that actually study um, OCD. And um, so we are still probably a bit behind from what other um, disorders have. And so there are a few competing ideas of what um, is driving OCD. And that comes because of the heterogeneity of the OCD. When I gave these examples in the beginning, you could see they're very varied. You know, it goes from um, hygiene to hand with hand washing to like repetitive checking. And so each of those, this very heterogeneous symptom picture um, leads to different speculations about what could be the cause of it. Um, and so there are different, um, a, a range of different ideas. What is driving OCD? One is that um, that OCD is very much driven by doubt that they have, like that they need to be more certain about things until they are certain, and that's why they go back and check again. Um, that's why they do stuff repeatedly. And we have a line of research where we look at how people gather information and how much information they need in, until they make a decision. Um, there is another hypothesis that this is all just habits, that um, a habitual system takes over, and that we are that that those affected by OCD are not actually that aware when they are conducting their um, compulsions, they're not, uh, they conduct them habitually. So it's very automated and they don't really have much control over it. Um, and then there's other um, aspects such as, for example, metacognitive insight, where um, there might be a difficulty of, of uh, with confidence, how you create your certainty. And it's again, related to the doubt um, that I just mentioned um, and that people with OCD have more difficulty being confident about the decision, even though they have the same information um, as people without OCD. So it's incredibly useful to have such a clear definition, because as you say, there is such a misunderstanding, I think, here in terms of the popular stereotype. And I, I'm just wondering, because another element of that um, stereotype is... Um, on the more clinical end of things is that it's connected more to hygiene, hand washing. And I'm just wondering what the, what the current thoughts are about the content of these, um, obsessions and, and 
whether there's anything you you can get at in your research on on where that content arises from. So I guess my first question is 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 that stereotype of it being very connected to hygiene true, or is that again a misunderstanding? Yeah, so there are about four or five um, subcategories that that the literature usually finds, and hygiene and washing is is one of them. Um, I think it's one of the more common one, but it's not the only one. It's not the dominant one. I think checking is is equally frequent. Um, so the puzzle is a bit, little bit that there's only the the actual content is seems to come more accidentally than we could really link. You know, like hand washing is linked to brain process A and checking is linked to brain process B. So that these approaches have been looked at and haven't really been successful. Um, and also there's, it's interesting to see that um, people that are affected by OCD, sometimes it changes over time what kind of symptom it is. And usually it's more than just one. Um, and the current explanation is it's usually targeting something that is important to you. So it's usually kind of that the obsession and the compulsions are around something that is meaningful. And you can also trace that a little bit through the throughout the ages. So 100 years ago, it was much more um, related to religious content. Um, and people probably with a stronger religious background are more likely to develop OCD, which are um, related to sin and and uh, religious content. And so it kind of, yeah, it just picks on the things that, that make you anxious, which, which is really mean, um, <clears throat> so to say. Um, I'm really interested in, in this sort of first hypothesis that you put forward through, for it, that it's doubt-related or maybe uncertainty-related. Do we have any, do we know anything about sort of the, the functional basis of OCD? Are there are there medications that work that give us pointers, or are there brain regions that are social? Like, what is? How does it? What's causing it? <laughs> what's causing it? <laughs> if I knew that, then um, you'd be I out of a job. Yeah. You'd be yeah, famous. Exactly. You'd be famous. Um, then out of the job. And out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, yeah. We'll see whether I'll ever get there. Um, yes. So the. There are different ways of uh, thinking of OCD, and uh, throughout the time, they have different um, hypotheses being for, put forward. Um, if you look at the medication, which people usually take as a hint for which system might be involved, so the standard medication is SSRIs. That's a medication that mainly affects the uh, serotonergic system. And essentially very similar medication to what you, um, how you treat uh, depression with. Um, often they are, or sometimes they are supplemented with um, dopamine um, related drugs, such as risperidone. Um, but there is fairly limited evidence for either of the system really being affected. And in particularly the, the assumption that serotonin is kind of one of the causes, it, there is not very much evidence. Um, so the idea would, is often that serotonin might help, but you know, you can, you can break a system in one way and then try to mend it with another way. And that's my, how SSRIs work, um, as they also do in, in depression, I think. Um, I think there is um, 
well, one of the more interesting hypotheses is that it's related to dopamine um, and dopamine dysfunction. Um, I think that was probably put uh, out there 20 years ago. Um, still, the evidence is, is relatively limited, um, mainly because we're limited in how we can study it. It's very difficult to get any animal model of OCD because of the obsessions, these thoughts, you can't determine whether a, a mouse has that. So we're limited to what we can do with human neuroimaging. And so we can see that certain brain regions light up and we know that they're likely to be innovated by dopamine. Um, but that's all the circumstantial evidence we have. Um, and indeed, we see that it's mainly frontostriatal loops which are affected if we talk about the neuroanatomy and we know that they are tightly linked to dopamine functioning. And so I think that's where probably the strongest evidence comes from. So the idea is that there are these loops um, between the um, limbic striatum, so areas deeper sitting deeper in the brain um, and mainly the prefrontal cortex so the thing that sits above your eyes uh, which is critical for thinking and more complex um, computations and these um, loops seem to be somewhat out of order um, at least that's what most of the evidence is showing and in our own work we have shown that such like reward prediction errors that I mentioned at the beginning, um, linked to RL, that they are um, different in activity in OCD compared to um, healthy controls. And, and colleagues from Cambridge then actually took it a step further and showed that if you uh, administer dopamine, then you can norm, kind of normalize these um, altered prediction errors in OCD. So that's probably the, the best evidence that there might be these aberrant um, processes um, linked to OCD. And, and do you think that that influence of dopamine is going to be reducing the obsessions or you keep having your obsessions, but you're just less likely to be worried about them or act on them? Yeah, I mean, that, that is like, that is very much out there. Um, and we don't have no idea. Um, how, how, and, and this is really, this is a critical thing, right? So we, we, on the one hand, we have this brain mechanism understanding. We know how certain information is processed, but then how do we translate that to the experience that someone has, the symptom? And this is kind of the, the main gap that we try to bridge. Um, which is really challenging. And so um, we're not quite sure um, is the short answer. The long, slightly longer answer is we try to kind of look at symptoms, try to break them down and try to understand how could we, how could uh, 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 information processing an RL model go wrong in order to give rise to these symptoms. And so you could think of um, a hyperactive prediction error system, so where the system that always tells you you're wrong, even though you're right, or um, that makes you doubt what you're, what you know, and that maybe makes you um, less confident and it may, may make you um, go ahead and, and check more and more because you're constantly thinking you're wrong. And so that is one of the, the ideas that, that people have put out there, including us. And just as you mentioned the challenge of animal models in this area, 
just thinking out loud, a slightly wacky idea. Could you not have an animal model where you kind of just index a state with a neural marker and then just see that the mouse is always stuck in that state? Has anyone been thinking along those lines? Um, not that I know of. So what they usually, because it's, it's difficult to, to define that state, right? So it, it that sounds maybe a little bit like um, working post-traumatic stress disorder where you expose them to like a, a stress-inducing state and then you have it recall, uh, reappearing, um, which, yeah, it's probably a different process from what OCD is uh, doing. So there are some notions that, that suggest that there might be a traumatic event which is triggering it, but I think the evidence is, is fairly weak and I think it's more likely that there is no trauma related to it. So is then an animal model where you traumatize it in a way, is that an adequate model? And so the, the standard animal models, they usually just um, have, they look at repetitive behaviors like grooming behavior um, as a proxy, but obviously that grooming behavior, is that really driven by these um, same obsessions or is it just a more of a motor process that, that we don't know and it's difficult to judge. Are, are there clear, I mean, are there clear factors that, uh, contribute to the development of OCD? Like, for example, do we know if there's experiential, environmental, genetic factors that predispose you to developing it, or is it totally unpredictable? Yes, no, no, there is clear predictions. Um, I think with OCD, as with probably most other mental illnesses, you go, you assume that, or we assume that there is a biopsychosocial uh, um, model there. So there are clear... The, so OCD has a high heritability. That means it runs in families and you often see, you very often see that, um, that if you have a patient coming in, um, someone in the family also has OCD um, or very strong OCD traits. And there's definitely a genetic aspect to it. Um, again, which genes exactly are playing a role is very difficult to say and uh, um, as with many other mental illnesses, when you try to use just gene to predict whether someone gets ill, you don't get very much variance explained. So you're not very good at predicting just on the, by the genes alone. Um, there's definitely environmental influences as well. Um, and probably social as, as everywhere, you know, if you have a very good support system, that helps prevent um, and you have psychological factor just like your resilience, um, your reaction to stress and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not one single, one, one single cause, but lots of different ones. So I was wondering if you could tell us um, a bit about the most exciting thing you're working on right now. Maybe not the most exciting if you want to keep that under wraps, but a, an exciting project that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, I think what I'm very excited about at the moment is to really understand this in a developmental context. So as you said in the introduction, my lab is called the Developmental Computation Psychiatry Lab. And I think that is something that the field is still neglecting, um, which is that OCD in particular, but many other uh, mental illnesses arise really during like early development. And so in OCD, you often have an onset at around the start of adolescence. And so the trying to understand what is it really that makes this time period such a vulnerable time period. And so to 
try to understand that we are um, trying to, to really look at developmental studies. So because we know all of these behaviors like the reinforcement learning and the tasks associated and the cognitions associated with them, they undergo tremendous changes during the from childhood to adulthood. And so when we, if we want to really understand the causes that, that or the vulnerabilities that, that might give rise to this disorder, I think we have to take this developmental um, angle. And so we've done a lot of work on just looking out like how are these processes actually developing with age? Um, and what I'm very hoping, really hoping to do um, is to trace that longitudinally so that we look at the same young people and follow them over the years and to see what are the determinants that um, can tell whether someone is going to develop, let's say, an OCD or not. Um, that is more of like a long-term vision, actually, where we're working towards because there are lots of bits and bobs that need to be in place in order to do that. So we need to be able to measure these tasks um, and these behaviors in a in a reliable and good manner. It needs to be accessible and so on. And that's where we, for example, have developed the Brain Explorer app, which is a an app for uh, Android and Apple. Um, store weight, which you can just download and, and we've turned all these tasks that we usually do in the scanner into games that you can play, um, short, fun uh, games on, on, on your iPhone or um, Android device. And by playing these short games, we can collect data. And by doing that, we can collect thousands and thousands of people um, across the globe, essentially, we have people from all over the world, and we can actually then not only um, not only look at the, the development, but also we have a better representation of the actual population, um, which which gives us better insight um, into OCD and the development of OCD. So that's where we are currently really working on. And you're actively recruiting for that, so people should go to your website and they can play the game. Oh, yes, definitely. So um, if you're interested or if you have kids around or anyone, just tell them uh, you can go on brainexplorer.net um, and download it or directly on your app store and enter Brain Explorer and then it should pop up. You heard it here first. Go and download it. Exactly. Um, so, so to be honest, I mean, this is a really fascinating field that sort of merges research, direct medical applications how on earth did you get involved in it? Was that, what was what was your route into this, or or maybe I should go back even further? Like, at what point did you did you know you were going to be working in this sort of field? Is this a, a long held ambition, or is this uh, something that you stumbled on later in life? Yeah, I I never planned for this to be honest. Um, <laughs> I I think I was I was very interested in understanding the human mind. I think that was driving towards the end of my um, towards the end of my high school years I was really trying to understand what what is, what is going on in in people's minds um, so I studied psychology um, at first and I was very interested like more clinically oriented um, and I think I, I remember I had to after my undergrad decide where I will go more towards cognitive neuroscience or psychoanalysis those were my top two topics and it was it was a close call but then i decided to go um towards cognitive neuroscience so that's where i got acquainted with brain imaging and, and brain research but i think i always had a, a very strong interest in mental health um i worked quite a bit in in child and psychiatry in different roles 
Um, and that was always the idea, I think, was, you know, I'm going to do a, a psychotherapy education um, training afterwards and then become a child adolescent psychotherapist or something. Um, and by doing some, I think, doing internships along the way, I also got really excited about research and, and got like unique chances to work in, in cool labs. And so towards the end of my master's, I just thought, well, it would be cool to do some neuroimaging in channel and psychiatry. So combine both. And then afterwards, I can always still do my, my psychotherapist training. And so it just happened to be that there was this fantastic um, opportunity in, in channel and psychiatry in Zurich to do exactly that. Uh, where I also got exposed to or exposed myself to computational modeling. Um, and so I did my PhD in that field and, and kind of, it was very cool. I liked it. And um, yeah, I think it really got sucked into it. And that's when I then decided that I want to know more about the methods and get better with that. And that's when I then came to UCL and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> Is is there anything you do differently, knowing what you know now? Any any dead ends or ways you could have sort of leapfrog further down? Or would you just do something totally different? <laughs> yeah, I am. I mean, hopefully, not too many psychologists will listen to that. But I I am not quite sure how much I learned in in undergrad psychology. To be honest, I think there is. Um, I, I mean, it's also 20 years ago, so the curriculum was still quite different and anything neuroimaging or biology related is, is, um, probably more embedded now, but I think what I, um, in hindsight, I think I should have done more is more neuroscience training as well as more, you know, math analyses, computation modeling. Um, I, I had like a, a focus on that during high school, but then I kind of abandoned it completely. And now it's really hard to learn it um, when you're my age. Um, but yeah, that's definitely like more computational oriented. I, I would have loved to do more of that. Just a public service announcement. There's plenty of neuroscience in the UCL undergraduate psychology. <laughs> degree, so. um, but I, I'm wondering whether, do you still have a kind of... Um, do you wonder what would have happened if you'd gone down the psychotherapy route? And do you think you might want to pursue that again in the future? Is something you've kind of wanted to to have as a string to your bow? Um, well, I think I would have enjoyed that other job as well. Um, I guess, yeah, I think I can follow more of my, like can follow my curiosity more in in the job that i have so i definitely don't regret it um i am trying to work more closely with clinicians um, as we go along because that's just really difficult i think and it's really essential to the bridge to clinicians like the insights that psychotherapists and clinicians have you know they're um, often implicit understanding of how something works can be a really valuable source for us to start modeling and put it into computational models. Um, and I think that that is some route that I want to pursue, like to be more embedded with clinical people. I am afraid it's probably a bit too late, or at least at, at the moment, I don't have the time for, for a full psychotherapy um, training. But, you know, um, still have a couple of years and maybe after retirement, why not? That feels like um, a good 
end point, right? I feel like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like we've come full circle. Unless there's uh, unless there's um anything else you want to tell us that's been a big influence on your life or that's you know that we should that we or and our audience should know about working in this field. Um no, I think we covered many different aspects of it. Um, I'm very happy with that, yeah. Okay, in which case there is time for uh, uh, the thing that we ask everyone. So uh, we're about to wrap up, but before we do, we like to ask each of our guests the same question. And that question is this, what is your favorite fact about the brain? Yeah, so as I said, I was very interested in development. Um, and it's amazing to know that the brain develops for a very long time, you know, 30 years ago, People thought when children were born, more or less, that's that's it, and then the brain is fixed. But obviously, that's not the case. So um, my favorite fact is that we talked about dopamine and these dopamine projections um, going from the brainstem to the prefrontal cortex and so on. And it actually turns out that, at least in animal models, these uh, so-called mesocortical connections are amongst the last one to develop. So they grow throughout adolescence, um, which is really cool. So they kind of connect from the, the midbrain first to the striatum and then sit there for a while and then continue going on into the prefrontal cortex um, at the very late, at late adolescence. And that can tell us a lot about what is going on and, and how, why people react differently to rewarding things or, or punishing things. Um, and um, I think that's, that's probably the, the, the one mechanism that is developing the latest, at least as far as we know. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Great stuff. Well, that was fascinating. And thanks so much, Tobias, for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smarts for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. We thank Patrick Robertson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Please do follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.